Alright, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and welcome to the first episode in the new series that I'll be doing on the New Orleans Axeman. Well, this is the first episode that I've done on the Axeman this year. It is definitely not the first one on this channel. Last year I did a multi-part series about the New Orleans Axeman, which was a topic that was requested by one of the listeners here for Black Box Online Radio. So, if anybody has ideas for future episodes, you can put your response in the comment section down below. You can share a suggestion, and maybe it will be turned into a future episode of BBO War. However, I do confess that the topic list is getting rather large. But the New Orleans Axeman is an unidentified serial killer. He was never caught or identified, and there's even a big dispute about which crimes were committed by the Axeman and which crimes were not. The same way that we have these types of theories in the Jack the Ripper case or the Zodiac Killer case. But I think a big difference is there is so little that is known about the New Orleans Axeman, it became very difficult to pinpoint when the Axeman actually operated. Some people think that the New Orleans Axeman started operating in 1918 and he committed a crime spree that went into 1919. Other people think that the Axeman actually began earlier in the decade, sometime after 1910, and then there was even one guy who made a user-generated documentary on YouTube talking about how he thought that the first crime committed by the Axeman was in 1879, the DeFore murders, the murders of um, an elderly couple in a farmhouse in Georgia. So, as you can see, it's all across the board, and that guy had a rather elaborate theory, but the way he tried to tie it all together was he thought that there was a German national who spent his entire adult life, maybe around 60 years, committing murders in Germany and in the United States of America. So, he had reasons why he was stating that, but I definitely don't subscribe to that theory. But what would be a good starting point for this new series on the New Orleans Axeman. Well, when I was looking into the case last year, just by chance, I happened to have stumbled upon an episode of Most Notorious, a podcast that I turn to a lot, and it's on YouTube for free, and they did an interview with Miriam C. Davis, who is the author of The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, and she was talking about how the majority of the general public's Knowledge of the Axeman comes from a book called Ready to Hang by Robert Talon, Seven Famous New Orleans Murders. I should have said that in a different way. It's called Ready to Hang, Seven Famous New Orleans Murders by Robert Talon, maybe pronounced Robert Talent, depending on your English pronunciation and your French pronunciation, English and Cajun French from Louisiana. But I am holding my copy here of Ready to Hang, and let's look at what Robert Talon had to say about the New Orleans Axeman, because this is going to be a part one in the series. And the reason why is, first we're going to look at his observations about the case, and then look at some challenges, and I will definitely go through Miriam C. Davis's The Axeman of New Orleans, because I had the opportunity to correspond with her last year, and I've shared this before on the channel, but I openly asked her, do you have a message for the listeners of Black Box Online Radio? And she stated that her book, The Axeman of New Orleans, is really the only book that is 
trying to do an investigative case into the story of this unidentified serial killer because there are lots of articles out there and there are books like Roberta Lund's, um Ready to Hang that features a chapter on the Axeman. But firstly, here are some things to think about. Roberta Lund also wrote many different stories. He covered many different subjects. He was someone who had connections to journalism, and I cite Davis for all of this. And is it possible that he was taken into the world of fantasy-filled journalism, or maybe what some people try to do, just to write a very entertaining story, but that means that they're blending in the facts with fictitious additives. And this is something that happens all the time in the true crime world, especially with journalists. Back in 2019, I did two episodes on the story of Lily Lindstrom, the Atlas Vampire victim. She is the subject of, well, just that, the Atlas Vampire murder that was committed in the 1930s in Sweden. And at first it seems like, oh, it's such a horrific story about how this man murdered a woman and then drank her blood. But then you find out, okay, well, somebody found a bloodstained ladle in a courtyard, and it might have even been a spoon, and then people are trying to put two and two together and think that, oh, well, that must have been connected to the Lindström murder, and people who speak Swedish, not me, but other people have written just saying that this was the work of journalists, and that was the first time that I used the term fantasy-filled journalism on this channel, because I, w I read it about the Lindström murder, that someone was taken over with fantasy-filled journalism. And let's see what we find in Robert Talon's book, Ready to Hang. Is this going to be a case of fantasy-filled journalism, or is this going to be a case of someone who was trying to share the story of the Axeman? Now, I, before we truly begin, I would like to remind you guys that you can always like and subscribe to help support the channel. You can always visit some of the episode, other episodes of Black Box Online Radio every Monday at Zodiac Monday talking about the Zodiac Killer. And this week on Friday, I will be doing an episode about the book Convicting Avery, the story of Stephen Avery and the murder of Teresa Holbach from 2005, made famous by the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. And you can support all of these efforts by going over to buymeacoffee.com there's a link to that in the description box. And anybody who makes a donation or contribution to help the show will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. But Robert Talon's section on the Axeman is actually called The Axeman for Wings, and he has more or less a challenge to the readers. Let's look here. Probably there are a few human beings who have not considered the murderer who might come for them in the night. All of us would like to cherish the illusion that when we retire, and all the lights are out, and all the doors fastened, that we are safe until the next day. Yet who has not awakened in the night to lie listening to the strange unexplainable noises to his own pounding heart? Now, I think that this question can be shaped into a different way. And this will be somewhat of a personal challenge question, but have you ever believed or thought that someone was trying to kill you in the middle of the night. Do you ever think that just there's uh, some presence coming after you? And I shouldn't have said try to kill you because that sounds way too morbid. Have you ever thought that somebody was trying to come after you in the middle of the night? You hear those noises and and then you just um, have this unexplained um, urge of fear or sense of fear rather. 
And I only answer that one if you want to. It's not like it's mandatory, but that's kind of what Robert Talon is using to start the the episode. The next part says, Thousands of Orleanians knew what it meant to be in fear and to experience all of this through 1918 and 1919, when the Axeman terrorized the city and some did awaken, if they had been able to sleep at all, to glimpse the killer and to know that the axe was falling, that their skull was going to feel its sharp edge. Not many cities have known such a time of terror. Uh, that their skull is going to feel the sharp edge. Yeah, he's not really holding back on the um, on the image that he's trying to create. In 1918, New Orleans, like all other American cities, was busy thinking and reading about and devoting itself to the news and the duties of World War One. Um, so, the war, of course, is going to end in 1918. The Great War, World War One, 1914 to 1918. But I think that it's very interesting that we have the Axeman operating in 1918 and 1919, just at the tail end of World War One, and into the next year. And the Phantom Killer, another unidentified serial killer whom I talked about on this channel, operated in 1946, one year after the World War ended. Now, does that not... I mean, is, is there something going on, either in terms of psychology? Some people just think that that's the answer to things, that, oh yeah, well, somebody had post-traumatic stress disorder, so they, um came back from the war and they had some new, newly brought on mental issues and this is why we have these serial killer homicide sprees taking place after World Wars, World War One and World War Two. And other people think that it's something to do with the newspapers and the way they're presenting the story. Let's continue. Although there was hope that it would not go on much longer, the war that is, and a great deal of optimism that the Allies would win, headlines in a New Orleans newspaper on May 3rd read, Lull in Flanders, Allies, Line Holding. Yet by May 23rd, the same newspaper said, Mass Germans awaiting orders now to open drive. And then the Orleanians were instructed to kill the germ. Kill the germ in Germany. Liberty bonds will help. Okay, well, it sounds like somebody has an agenda, but there is always an opportunity, I suppose. On May 24th, another headline announced, Senate rejects dry amendment by 20 to 20 vote. At New Orleans Moving Pictures, the film Charlie Chaplin had made called A Dog's Life was starring. But on the morning of May 24th, 1918, the Times-Picayune, P-I-C-A-U-N-E, devoted a good portion of its page to the story. And in the center of the page was a photograph where the room of the Maggio family had been sleeping, a room in their living quarters behind their store, with inset pictures of the couple as they lay and they had looked at their wedding fifteen years before. According to an account, police thought that it was just before dawn when someone had chiseled out a panel in the rear of the apartment it entered. He had struck each of the sleepers with an axe and then slit their throats with a razor. Mrs. Maggio lay on the floor, her head nearly severed from her body. Joseph Maggio was sprawled half out of the bed. The razor lay on the floor in a pool of blood. The axe as bloodstained blood as the razor was found on the steps going out into the backyard. The axe had been Maggio's own property. There was a small safe in the room which was opened, and a hundred or more dollars in cash was found beneath Maggio's blood-soaked pillow on the dresser in a little pile. Mrs. Maggio's jewelry, including several diamond rings, 
was also there. The police reported to have stated that they did not believe that robbery was the motive, but the murderer had, oper had opened the safe to make it appear that it was. I mean, if, if, if that's the case, though, you think he would have just made a better attempt to steal something if he's going to leave behind all this money and the jewelry. But you may have noted that, noticed that there's that particular detail that the Maggio's own axe was used in the attack. And I don't mean to jump around too much, but because I did this series last year talking about some other sources on the New Orleans Axeman, it was very normal for houses and families back in that time to have wood-burning stoves. And to, when you have a wood-burning stove, you would have an axe to chop the wood. So there's this weapon that is just always in the tool shed or the backyard, and it was very accessible. So that's one of the... one theory, hypothesis, or explanation about how the Axeman chose to commit the crimes simply because most houses had an axe and it was somewhat of a powerful weapon, obviously not compared to that of a gun, but it's a less, um, it doesn't make as much noise, definitely for sure. They discovered the bodies and around five o'clock and they heard groaning and strange noises on the other side of the wall separating the bedroom from that of a man named Joseph and his wife. Around, he, they were aroused, and then they heard Andrew, and together they went into the room. Andrew went with his brother Jake. Joseph was on the bed then and still alive. He even tried to rise and fall half out of the bed. Andrew and Jake called the police at once. The police put both of them under arrest. After a neighbor who rushed in the house along with them had seen Andrew come home at some time between 2 and 3 in the morning. Later in the morning, there was another curious discovery. Chalked on the sidewalk a block away, there were the words, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight, just like Mrs. Tony. The police went to work. In 1911, there had been three axe murders, similar to the Maggio case, all of Italian grocers and their wives. There had been a grocer named Cruti, there had been one named Rossetti, whose wife was murdered with him, and finally, Tony Schiambra and his wife was the last mrs tony referred to in the sidewalk writing people began talking of mafia and the black hand the italian population was particularly worried and some of them demanded police protection so i think that it's also important to provide a little bit of context firstly everybody thinks about the french quarter with new orleans they think about the uh, french influence not only on the language but also on the entirety of the city's history but with the Axeman story, it will mostly concentrate on the story of the Italian immigrants in New Orleans, particularly of Sicilian descent. Because as you heard here, and this is widely discussed, the victims appear to not only be of Italian or Sicilian descent, Sicily, of course, referring to the Italian island, but they are working in the grocery store business, mostly, mostly, not all the Axeman victims, will be of the same occupation, but what does this suggest? And there's the talk here of the Mafia and the Black Hand. Now, this is a theory about what's going on, and that is that, yes, there is a New Orleans Axeman. This isn't a hoax. This isn't just a story that was whipped up by newspapers, but it's that it was not a cold, methodical, and calculating serial killer. It wasn't someone who just had a terrible childhood and was abused and wanted to take out his frustrations on society because 
he was just angry, and that murder was the only intention. That he just simply wanted to murder people to strike terror and fear into the hearts of New Orleans. But it's actually done rather for profit and for employment and because of connections. I mean, it's an unsolved case. We can't say the exact reason why the Axeman was killing. But the mafioso angle is that this guy was not even a true serial killer. He was a henchman for the Italian mafia in New Orleans. And they, they've dreamt up scenarios like he may have been trying to extract bribes out of the people or some type of connections that might have been much greater than just the value of jewelry or the hundred dollars that is in the house and that they have to give a portion of their business regularly to the mafia and then the victims do not want to cooperate and if they didn't want to cooperate then the axemen went after them again henchmen for the mafia a hitman and that that could be the answer to the Axeman case, but that is purely a theory, and we um, will explore that one definitely more in the channel, but I think that it's very, very interesting. I should point out in Robert Talon's um, next page in the book, Ready to Hang, he talks about how there's a detective named Theodore Obitz, O-B-I-T-Z, and shortly after the Maggio murder, he is murdered himself. It says, the papers on May 26 announced that the detective Theodore Opitz had charge had been in charge of the case, and he had many theories. On the evening of May 26, my birthday, mind you, Detective Opitz was shot through the heart by a black man he was arresting for burglary. It had no connection with the Maggio murders. I mean, this is one of the um, exceptions that I take with the true crime writers when they say he had no connection. How on earth can you say that someone truly had no connection? If it's an unidentified case, there's always a chance, right? And maybe some way, somehow, there could have been a connection, but it's almost not going down the road less traveled by. It's leaving stones unturned, and it's kind of making an assumption, so to speak. But that's just my take on the subject. Weeks pass and nothing happened. The newspapers informed Orleanians that the Allies had been forced to retire and that the Russian Tsar had been murdered. Many citizens probably forgot about the Maggio case. They were rushing to the Strand Theater to see James W. Girard's My Four Years in Germany had road show prices and talking about the New Orleans Over the Tops show in the New Red Cross Drive. Then on June 28th, a baker named John Zonka made his morning call to deliver bread to the grocery of Louis Bessemer, B-E-S-U-M-E-R. And Louis Bessemer is going to be very important in this story. But some people pronounce his name Louis Bezume, again because of the French influence of New Orleans. But Louis Bessemer's uh, ancestry was not French, he was Polish. And most people, including Miriam C. Davis, pronounce it Bessemer. I think either one is acceptable in New Orleans. It was after 7 o'clock when he arrived, as Bessemer's store was still closed. Zonka went around to the living quarters in the rear to leave the bread there, rather than risk having it stolen in the front of the store. When he reached the back, he stopped and stared in horror. A lower panel of the door had been neatly chiseled out. Perhaps half-consciously, Zonka knocked on the door. He said later, There seemed nothing else to do. And Louis Bessemer opened the door. 
Blood streamed from a wound in his head, and he said, My God, my God. Zonka rushed past him and found that the woman he had always thought Mrs. Bessemer to be was on the bed covered with a bloodstained sheet, unconscious and with a terrible head wound. He called Charity Hospital and the police. The newspapers announced the next day that Mrs. Bessemer was in a serious condition, but still alive, and that Bessemer had been released. Detectives had the believed the woman had been attacked on the gallery leading across one side and living and on the living quarters and had gone to the living quarters there was much blood there and she had dragged herself or had been carried back to the bed possibly by bessemer an axe bessemer's own property was discovered in the bathroom still bright bright red with blood bessemer said that it was polish and that he had lived in new orleans for only three months that is what the sentence says. Bessemer said it was Polish and lived in New Orleans for only three months. So um, I think that's kind of an awkward way of phrasing it, but Bessemer was of Polish descent. I think that's the important part there, and he is rather new to the city of New Orleans. He had come to the city from Jacksonville, Florida, and before that, he operated a farm in South America, on June 29th, there were further developments. That morning, the Times-Picayune carried a headline, Spy Nest Suspected. And this is uh, something that really deviates from the whole Sicilian grocer story, because it was stated that the letters to Bessemer that were discovered in his apartment after the attack were written in German, Russian, and Yiddish, and they had been found in a trunk in his apartment. The New Orleans states that the same day, I believe the New Orleans States is a um, publication, that the same day the question was, is Bessemer a German agent? Was the Bessemer grocery a front for the spy ring? And when I hear stories about this from other researchers, including Miriam C. Davis, they really just make it sound like they found a trunk in his home that had pieces of writing in these other languages, German, Russian, and Yiddish. Bear in mind that World War I is still operating, and the Germans are part of the Central Powers, not the Allies, but the Russians were not allied with the Germans. And as far as Yiddish, I mean, that doesn't really connect to any particular country. And my absolute gut instinct when I encountered that for the first time was, perhaps Louis Bessemer was just somewhat fascinated by European languages or something. Maybe he even had some knowledge of them, but just because somebody can read a little bit of Russian or maybe read a lot of Russian, it doesn't mean that he's a spy, especially when the Russians weren't the enemies in that particular one. And I'm sure some people are already concocting some stories. But as you hear, Bessemer was also working in the grocery business, and I'm sure you also noted that the panel, according to Robert Talon, was chiseled out the same way it was in the Maggio attack. Does that not suggest that there is indeed an axe man? I mean, see, this is the stuff that we will have to get into, because these details seem completely consistent with a single perpetrator, that there was someone who was using the axe, same method, same operation, same MO, and I think that a big difference would be that there isn't an allusion to the crimes that took place in the past, but we'll definitely have to explore some of those. I guess I can just tell you now, because this isn't really some type of contest or anything, and you have to save the good stuff for the end. You have to save the final rounds of ammunition for the uh, 
last hurrah. So there is a theory that the New Orleans Axeman was actually operating in the early part of the 1910s, I guess we can call it that, 1910, 11, or 12, doing the same stuff, being a henchman for the mafia, or maybe he's just a sadistic jerk who hates grocery store owners, I don't know. And those crimes are called the cleaver attacks because, before using the axe, a meat cleaver was stolen from various locations, and again, not the axe man's property, or the cleaver attacker's property, but then he's going after victims, and as you heard about Mrs. Tony there. So, what could that really mean? I mean, is this all in line with some type of single perpetrator, or are these unconnected crimes, or are these misrepresented crimes by the media, particularly newspapers, and that they aren't actually as similar as the papers are trying to make it seem? Part one of the series, don't you love all the questions? But one reporter asked a question of his own, and that is about the, um, the whole theory of the Mafia. One reporter did note, however, that Bessemer was not Italian and asked, what of the Mafia theory and the axe killings? And I'm glad that people thought the same way back in 19-whatever that we do now in 2000-whatever. It's amazing. It was also noted that Louis Obicon, O-U-B-I-C-O-N, an African-American employee of Bessemer, was held for questioning. Well, I mean, I'm not going to make any more comments on that. Bessemer's own statement was made on pub made public on July 1st. The first thing he said was, That woman is not my wife. He said that the woman who had been attacked was named Mrs. Harriet Lowe, and that she had come to New Orleans from Jacksonville with him, and that they had lived together ever since. His own wife was ill, and he said she lived with relatives in Cincinnati. He swore he did not know what happened. Someone struck him while he was at in his bed sleeping. When he regained consciousness, he found Mrs. Lowe on the gallery, and she and someone had carried her to the bed. He had been about to summon an ambulance when Zonka knocked on the door. He was not a German, but a Pole, and he had no use for the no use for the Germans. He spoke and received mail in half a dozen languages. He was certainly no spy. He offered the police his full cooperation. Now that seems a little bit consistent with what I was thinking, that he's just some guy who was uh, very interested in languages, and, I mean, he's of European descent himself, and this um, mostly states here that he has been residing in America for an extended period of time, and I believe that to be the truth, even if I can't give you all of the specifics via my time machine or something like that and actually look at the life of Louis Bessemer. But my gut instinct is telling me that he wasn't actually a spy. He was just um, rather rather keen on studying different subjects. Federal authorities did come into the case, carrying a bathrobe for her. Bessemer went to see Harriet Lowe at the hospital. He was refused admittance, and the bathrobe was taken away from him and ripped open at the seams by government agents. The next day, his grocery and living quarters were ransacked. Nothing was found. You see, that is just so saddening that... Someone's attacked, nearly murdered, Harriet Lowe is murdered, and then all the suspicion comes on him. Ah, he did this to himself. And I was trying to avoid any type of racist discussion earlier about the uh, man who worked from him, who was also questioned, but, I mean, could there have possibly been some motive for that person, Obacon, to have, uh, to have attacked Louis Bessemer? I mean, I simply don't know. 
and I don't want to speculate too much, but it seems like they may have been thinking that it was a type of inside job. Or perhaps it was indeed someone who was targeting grocery store owners because of some type of mafia-related question. Even if it isn't about extorting money or taking control of their connections, maybe someone's just trying to put them out of business, murder the shopkeeper so they can't operate their store anymore, and then other things that are aligned with the mafia can take shape. Mrs. Lowe made her first statement on July 5th, having then regained consciousness. Sorry that I said that she was murdered before, um, excuse me. She said, I've long suspected that Mr. Bessemer was a German spy. Wow, wow. And Bessemer was arrested at once. Uh, she doesn't seem to be too happy with him. On July 6th, Mrs. Lowe was interviewed again, and she said, I am married to Mr. Bessemer. If I am not, I don't know what I'll do. Then she added, I did not say Mr. Bessemer is a German spy. That is perfectly ridiculous. A few days later, Bessemer was freed from government custody. And I think that you can gather some things from that piece of text there. And that is that um, she might not be completely aware of what she's saying, but that really, really hurts the case because that means you have a witness who is not very credible. Mrs. Lowe was at last talked to about the attacks, and she said that Bessemer was working on his accounts at about midnight, and that she was sitting at a table with him and had a lot of money before them. She was always worried about how careless he was with money, and she warned him and asked him to put it in a safe. Then she smelled some prunes, and then she started cooking in the kitchen, and she went to look at them, the prunes on the stove, that is. There her memory left. She supposed that it was a blow on the head. She couldn't even remember going to bed. Her next memory was waking up. I don't even know what made me wake up, she told the police, but I opened my eyes, and in the light from the outside, I saw a man standing over me, making some sort of motions with his hands. I saw the axe. I recall screaming, go away, don't push me that way. He was a rather tall man and heavy set. He was a white man, and he wore no cap or hat. I remember this. He was having dark brown hair, he had dark brown hair, and he almost stood on end. He wore a white shirt that was opened at the neck, and he stood there making motions with the axe, but not hitting me. The next thing I remember is laying out on the gallery with my face in a pool of blood. Well, how do we really trust anything that she's saying? And that's so saddening because someone has been attacked, and they are trying to share their story, but... Her inconsistencies are really just making us doubt everything. And it doesn't even mean that she's a liar. She was bludgeoned with an axe and nearly died. Excuse me for uh, jumping to jumping ahead and saying that she was murdered. Misstatement on my part. But she nearly died. And then that just kind of leaves so much room for doubt. She may have just genuinely not been able to remember what was going on. And guess what? The story changed again on July 15th. In another police interview, Mrs. Lowe said that she was not in bed when she was struck. She was on the gallery. Police thought that this made more sense and again looked toward Bessemer with suspicion. They questioned neighbors. Yes, the Bessemers had violent quarrels, but Bessemer was 59 and Mrs. Lowe was 39. He was jealous and they quarreled over money. So, I think that, um, well, we, actually, Robert Talon has a challenge question again. Could Bessemer's own wound have been self-inflicted? A check with authorities in Jacksonville and Cincinnati proved that Bessemer and Mrs. Lowe had never been married and that Bessemer had a living wife. That did not help matters as they were far from convinced that Bessemer was not a German agent. Now, here's something, though, that I think um, I would have to disagree with. I think that that would support Bessemer's um, innocence, that 
that shows that he was telling the truth. He said that he was not married to Harriet Lowe and that his wife was in Cincinnati and that she was ill. And it turns out that that's all true. Yet all of a sudden, he's the liar. It seems like everything that he was saying is the truth. Neighbors gossiped about the foreigner who had odd ways and spoke German fluently as well as other languages. And he was a simple peasant and had the manners and airs of a cluttered gentleman. Again, I don't really think there's anything odd about him speaking German, even though he's not a German himself. People began saying that perhaps Bessemer had attacked Mrs. Lowe and wounded himself, all in imitation of the Axeman. Well, how widely known was the Axeman at this point? Mrs. Lowe knew too much of his activities as a spy. But she's the one who has the credibility issue. I mean, did you not hear that in the story? That she's the one who's changing the story. She's the one who's saying that she's married to him when she is in fact not. She is the one who's saying that, oh, well, she's attacked in bed, then she's saying that she's attacked in the gallery, then she's attacked in bed, then she's attacked in the gallery. She's the one who just has the big inconsistency, so why isn't more uh, credit given to Louis Bessemer? Then on August 3rd, the doctors at Charity Hospital performed surgery upon Mrs. Lowe. Two days later, she died, and dying mumbling that Bessemer had struck her with the axe. He was arrested again and charged on with murder. The axe man chose that night, August 5th, to strike again. And that's where we're going to have to leave it at, leave it for now. And please tune in next week for the next episode on the New Orleans Maxman. But I will continue with Robert Talon's Ready to Hang, and then move on to The Axeman of New Orleans by Miriam C. Davis. But already, you see that Harriet Lowe is able to survive the attack for a while. And I think what's very important to note is that if she were indeed so badly injured, that she may not have actually had all of her mental faculties in order. I didn't know her personally. As I said, I can't just go back in time and ask her right after the attack during this period when she is still alive before she passes away. What I... I just cannot imagine that she is the one who is telling the truth in all of this. And in fact, she isn't. I mean, if her stories are inconsistent, then not everything she is saying is factual. And what I really notice, though, is that there is perhaps a certain amount of anti-German sentiment that is going on in New Orleans, as well as perhaps the majority of America. And I do remember hearing many stories about World War One that... There used to be a lot of German speakers in America. So many Americans are of German descent. And the ones who were fluent in German, and like they were raising their kids to speak German, all of that really came to an end. They didn't want to speak German around other people. They also began to alter the spelling of their names, because the Germans were the enemy. And you can even find this photo online of a guy who was tarred and feathered for being of German descent. I believe that was in the state of Wisconsin. So it seems like there really is a big rush to conclusions with Louis Bessemer being a spy. Now, this is the fantasy-filled stuff. It's outrageous, and there's nothing against Robert Talon. I was really trying to read his stuff to gain a contemporary understanding of the Axeman attacks or look at the general public's understanding of them. Already from the beginning, it appears that these crimes are occurring in an, a very similar way, very close together, and it does seem like some type of spree killer is on the loose. Now, 
have two victims of Italian descent, the Maggios. You have Louis Bessemer, who is of Polish descent. But they're both working in the grocery store business. Grocers, shopkeepers. Is that going to be the connection? Is that where the answers to this story are going to be held in the occupations that are that are taken on by the victims? Is there some sort of illegal criminal network in process? Or are these details just simply fudged by writers, by newspaper editors, and they're trying to say, oh yeah, the same type of panel is chiseled out, and they're both being committed with an axe, or that, well, maybe axe attacks happen much more frequently than we thought, because as as previously stated, an axe is used to chop wood, and it's easily available on the premises. Like, people are going to have it near their homes, so that a simple disagreement is going to turn into an axe attack. But this is just part one, and didn't even really scratch the surface, and next week I will continue with Roberta Lanz, Ready to Hang, so please tune in for that, and I hope that you'll follow along with this series, and you'll share your observations, and you'll talk about Jack the Ripper, and you'll talk about the Phantom Killer, and you'll talk about the Zodiac Killer, and what type of similarities do you notice, and what type of differences... And let's talk about psychological profiling. Does it seem like one person? Does it seem like many people? Does it seem like there is any hoaxing going on? Please put your ideas in the comment section down below. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also catch me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always blackboxned88 over on Instagram. And I will see you there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.